Well, I'm grateful, very grateful for the opportunity to uh, bring you God's Word tonight. I've known your pastor, met him off and on for a number of years, and uh, he invited me already a number of years ago, if opportunity ever afforded itself, and so I felt, well, I'm preaching twice, but my evening's open, and uh, it it all worked out. Thank you for staying, and may God's blessing be with us. And it's wonderful also to see uh, Reverend William McLeod again as well. Uh, I've had the privilege of preaching for you a few times as well, and it's good to see you, brother. Let's turn to Matthew 15, Matthew 15, 21 through 28, a very common story, but I believe one that is often either mysterious to people or misunderstood. And with God's help, I want to expound this, the meaning of this story with you tonight. Matthew fifteen twenty one. hear the word of God. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan, came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her, Not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meat that children, that means it is not fitting to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. May God bless the reading of his word to our souls. We um, have before us just a remarkable, remarkable story, dear church family. A story where Jesus is dealing with a woman in unique circumstances, but in a way that every child of God can identify with. Because what he's doing is he's maturing the faith of this woman. This woman actually has, I'll show you that, actually has the seed of saving faith in her as she comes to Jesus. And Jesus is maturing her faith. Now, how do we know that? Well, sometimes when you have 
a portion of scripture, be it a miracle, be it a parable, be it a history of some encounter between Jesus and someone else, the right interpretation of it, you can find near the end, maybe in the last verse often. And I believe that this is one more of these cases. When Jesus says at the end here in verse 28, O woman, great is thy faith. You can actually translate that also as mature is thy faith. Mature is thy faith. And that gives you a window, a key to open the door and window for light to see what's going on here in this mysterious story where Jesus seems to rebuff this woman in one way or another three times in a row. What he's doing is he's maturing her faith. Now, every single believer, if you're a boy or girl and you're a true Christian, if you're a teenager and you're a true Christian, if you're an adult, if you're, if you're aged and you're a true Christian, you want your faith matured. If you don't want your faith matured, if you don't want to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a very bad sign. You're either backsliding seriously or you're not a Christian at all. And so my theme tonight is going to be this, simply this, how does Christ mature our faith? And I trust that will be a theme that every believer gathered here tonight will be vitally interested in. I want to grow. I want to know my Savior better. That's a mark, a mark of grace that every believer can identify with. The beginning babe in grace, the advanced father in grace. William Perkins, the father of Puritanism, somewhere in his writings gives a a list of 15 marks of grace. How you may know you're a Christian. And then he gets done with all 15 and he says something like this. Maybe you still don't know. Maybe you feel you have so much struggle with indwelling sin, you still just can't believe you're a Christian. Well, he says, I'm going to give you one more mark of grace. Number 16. And this one, every single believer can identify with. Every single believer. Small in grace, advanced in grace. And what is it? Do you desire to know Christ better? Every believer can say that. My friend, if you can't say that, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. So I want to look with you at three thoughts. How Christ matures this woman's faith. The first thought is, by his apparent silence. Second thought is, by his apparent rejection. And the third thought is, by his apparent insult. His apparent silence, his apparent rejection, his apparent insult. Now, when you consider the meeting place of Jesus and this woman, it's, it's quite remarkable. Jesus and his disciples were getting in trouble in Jerusalem. 
They were trying to arrest Jesus. He managed to elude them. Seemingly, somewhat miraculously, and escaped. And his disciples went with him. And they went all the way north to the boundaries of Israel. To Tyre and Sidon. And there's a woman of Canaan who's beyond that. A Gentile woman. And she has this daughter, grievously vexed with the devil. And no doubt she's tried every physician in the area. And she's heard about Jesus. She's heard that he could cause the deaf to hear and the blind to see. And she hears of his generosity, his kindness to poor people. And she thinks to herself, I'm going to take my daughter, or I'm going to go to talk to Jesus about my daughter. Now, you need to understand it's very different today. But in those days, the Gentiles, each area had their own deity. And you can imagine, as she told people around her, if you just use your sanctified imagination a moment, there's obviously going to be people that are going to say to her, and she probably has that fear herself, well, if I go to Jesus, he's going to just be the Jewish Messiah, and he's not going to listen to me. I'm a Gentile. I have no rights. I'm a Canaanitish woman. I'm a Syrophoenician. And maybe some, some of her neighbors said the same thing. Why would you go to the Jewish Messiah? He won't hear you. But this woman, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, and exactly when we don't know, she is persuaded that this is the real Messiah that the world has been waiting for. And we know that because when she comes to him, she doesn't say Jesus of Nazareth. She doesn't just say Jesus. She calls upon him as the son of David, which is the Christ title, the anointed, the Messiah. O Lord, thou son of David, have mercy on me. This is astonishing. A Gentile woman. And the very fact that they met each other on the northern boundaries of Israel, imagine that. She comes all the way to Israel. And where does she begin to look for Jesus? It's almost like the story with uh, Jesus with Zacchaeus. Remember that, boys and girls? Zacchaeus is in the tree. And the Bible says, Jesus has to stop at that place. And he looks up in the tree, and he sees Zacchaeus. You see, or, or, or John 4. Jesus must needs pass through Samaria because there's one woman he has to meet. And so when this story is introduced, you see, it says, and behold, pay attention. Notice the wonder of this. A woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. Now in a sense, of course, this is true of every believer, don't you think? If you're saved, it's true of you too. That you 
came to meet Jesus. I'm talking about spiritual in your own soul. That He came to be real for you. That you had a, a divine encounter with Him through His Word. Probably through preaching, but possibly through other means of grace. Maybe just reading the Bible. Maybe through a godly friend. You look back later, you say, what a wonder. Behold, behold, this sinner came out of the coast of sin and met Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's a wonder. Every conversion is a miracle. And the older we grow, isn't that true? The more and more a wonder it becomes that God would look upon me and save me and save you. This is a miracle. What did you ever do to deserve salvation? Nothing. But God in his mysterious providence so orchestrated everything that you came to meet Jesus Christ and be saved by him through his spirit, revealing him to your soul through his word. So you would expect now, wouldn't you? Boys and girls, think about this. If you consider how this woman came to Jesus with a poor, poor, very poor daughter at home who was vexed with a devil, and you were to watch her, watch her crying out. In the Greek language here, the idea is that she's crying repetitively over and over, over and over. O Lord, thou son of David, my, my daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. The streets are ringing with her noise. If you look at to whom she came, and how she came, and why she came, what do you think Jesus is going to do? Well, if you, if you know all the other histories of the Gospels, you're going to say with me, he's going to heal that daughter. Isn't that true? And yet you read this mysterious words, but he answered her, this crying, this needy woman, not a word. What would you do if you were that woman? Boys and girls, let's say you came home from somewhere and you ran into your house and your mom was in the kitchen. And you came running in and you said, Mom, Mom, I, 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 I got something to tell you. And she just went about her work and she didn't do a thing. She didn't say one word to you. What would you think? You'd be upset, wouldn't you? You'd say, Mama, why aren't you talking to me? Why are you silent? to me. What a contrast. A crying woman and a silent Jesus. What reason there is for doubt for this woman? Oh, maybe my neighbors were right. There was no use to go to Jesus of Nazareth. He's only the Jewish Messiah. He'll have nothing to do with me. I'm a Canaanite. I'm an outcast. I might as well go back home. But boys and girls, this woman can't go back home. Because you heard, you heard me say it, the seed of faith is in her. She has an insight into who Jesus is. And so, faith 
never turns its back on Jesus. Faith has one object, Jesus Christ. Now, our doubts, we could turn our back on Jesus because of our doubts and our fears, perhaps. But faith, true faith and exercise, can never turn its back on Jesus. This woman can't go home. She has nothing to go home to but a demon-possessed daughter. She needs the Lord Jesus Christ. True faith, true faith perseveres. True faith cannot do without Jesus. And if you're a true Christian, you know what I mean. There came a time in your life where Jesus was an absolute necessity. Maybe an impossibility. Maybe you didn't see how he could ever be your Savior. Maybe you had to meet that intersection of those two crossroads, the road of impossibility and the road of necessity. And from the intersection, you cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. I can't do without you. How is it possible that Jesus is silent to this woman? Well, don't you know what the silence of God is in your own soul? Hasn't God been silent to you at times in your life? Has he answered every prayer you've put up? Aren't there still some prayers that seems like he's been silent toward? The great Scottish theologian Samuel Rutherford once said, silence is the bitterest ingredient a Christian has to drink in his cup of sorrow. Another time he said, the silence of God is like hell in the soul of the believer. Oh, the burden of a silent God. Where is thy God, the scoffer's sneer? In our own Psalter back home, it's worded like this, and maybe, it, maybe it's in your Psalter the same. To God, my rock, I cry and say, Oh, why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning on my way, oppressed by foes that know not thee, with anguish as from piercing sword? Reproach and bitterness I hear, while day by day, with taunting word, where is thy God? The scoffers sneer. Oh, the burden of the silence of God. It's the burden of the bride in the Song of Solomon, isn't it? I will rise now and go about the city in the street, Song of Solomon 3, 2 and 5, 6. And in the broadways I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. I called him, but he gave me no answer. Or you know the cry of Jeremiah. That cry in Lamentations chapter 3. When I cry and shout, the Lord shutteth out my prayer. Thou hast covered thyself with a cloud that our prayer should not pass through. The heavens can be like brass. At times in the believer's life, when he cries out to God, it seems like there is no answer. There's just silence. You sigh, you groan, you whisper, you cry, you plead. Maybe it's for a prodigal son, and you get no answer, and it seems to go from bad to worse. Maybe 
You feel exactly the way this woman must have felt. Maybe even tonight you feel that way. He's answering me not a word. All is silence. Deafening silence. Silence that multiplies the doubts within. Martin Luther knew that, knew that struggle. There's an amazing story one day when he's leaving home. God had blessed him, strengthened him. The Reformation had been ushered in. And four years later, 1521, Luther was very despondent for a while. Things seemed to be falling apart. It's one thing to begin the Reformation. It's another thing to continue it. Just like it is in your own spiritual life. It's one wonder that God began with you. It's another wonder that He continues with you. And that you persevere in the most holy faith. So Luther said to his dear wife, he called her Katie, my dear Katie, as he went to work one morning, he said, my dear Katie, God is so silent to me. This is amazing. I think he is dead. That's what Luther said. He was just so down. God was so silent. And Katie was a, a wise woman. She was a very good wife for Luther. And uh, that night when Luther returned home, all the shades in the house were drawn, like, like someone had died. And Luther, forgetting what he said in the morning, he burst into the home. He said, Katie, who's died? Well, she said, this morning, you said, God. And it, oh, it smote him. Smote him. Convicted him. But still, you see, the question is, why would, why would God be so silent to his people? Why? Well, we don't know all the answers, of course. Our lives are like a big jigsaw puzzle. A thousand pieces. God knows where every piece goes. And every piece fits together perfectly. God makes no mistakes. God may have 20 reasons, 50 reasons, why he's silent sometimes to us. We don't know all the pieces of the puzzle. In this case, and in many of our cases in our life, there are two big pieces, however, that we do know. Two reasons. No doubt there are more. Two reasons why God is sometimes silent to his own children. One reason is for his greater glory. His greater glory. If you just turn with me a, a moment to the Gospel of John, I want to take you there a minute to chapter 11 to show you how vividly this point comes across there. You see that at the beginning of John 11 that Lazarus is sick. And it says that Jesus loved Lazarus in verse 5. He's sick unto death. And a messenger is sent to Jesus. And Jesus is only six miles away from Bethany. So that's a, what, two-hour walk. And he hears that his very good friend, whom he loves, is dying. And what does Scripture say? Look at verse 6. When he heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. 
And you say, what? What sense does that make? If you have someone you, who, who you really love and you're two hours away, you hop in the car and you go. Or, you, or, or two hours walking, you, 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 you start walking. Why did Jesus wait two days? Well, look at verse 4. When Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. So that raises the question, how does the Son of God get the most glory? Does he get the most glory by healing a sick Lazarus or by raising a dead Lazarus? And translate that into your life. Does he get the most glory by always answering all your prayers right away? Or by sometimes delaying and being silent until from the ashes of your forlorn hopes, he suddenly comes and bursts those ashes back into flame and answers your cry when you basically felt there was no answer ever coming. And he gets all the more glory. So, through waiting times in our lives, God often gets more glory. He weans us from the things of this world while we wait on him. In his silence. In fact, I would dare to say that we often learn more in waiting times, in silent times, than we do in possessing times. Because we learn to trust in the Lord in the midst of darkness. And faith that trusts in God in the midst of darkness is often bringing more glory to God than when we trust Him in the midst of the sunshine of His grace. So that's one reason, don't you think, that Jesus is sometimes silent for a while, or appears to be so, in our lives, so he gets more glory through leading us through that silence and then answering our cries when we think it is all hopeless. From out of the ashes of our efforts, he revives the flames of faith and love and gives his answer when we least expect it. So that we learn to say, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. But what's the second piece of the puzzle? Well, another big piece in the puzzle is, of course, to mature our faith. To purify us and mature our faith. I want to develop this just a few moments with you, because I think it's very, very important. There was a 19th century director of an orchestra, and... uh, he did it very effectively one night. He was surrounded by people afterward. And there was a man there who asked him in front of all those people, why, why did your music sound so much more beautiful tonight than other orchestra directors who had the same, same piece of music? And the orchestra director said... Humbly, well, maybe it's the silences. Maybe it's the pauses. 
I want you to think about this in, in every area of life. Just imagine if, if your if you're pastor just spoke nonstop a sermon, like, like just, you know, no, his voice didn't drop at the end of a sentence. And he just rattled on, boom, 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 boom. No, no, no pauses in the whole message. You'd be worn out in 10 minutes, wouldn't you? Or if you open a book and there was no white space on the page, from the very top of the corner, all the way over, it was just all print everywhere. It would be, it would be hard to read. So all of life is like this. We need pauses. We need silas in our worship. We need, we need white space in our lives, in, in a book. We need pauses in music, pauses. We need time to meditate. We need, we need silent times, as well as times of activity. You can't be going 120 miles an hour all the time. And that's exactly why so many people have so little contact with God because they're so busy doing so many things all the time, they have no time for reflection. And so what God does is sometimes, by His silences, He stops us in our lives so we have times of reflection. Times of reflection. There's a well-known minister who attended a service in, uh, in our church one time, and he, was, he, he heard another minister preach, and afterward he said, well, the sermon was all right, but there wasn't enough white space on the page. Have you, have you, ever, have you ever wondered why that you need time to reflect on God's dealings with you? You need time to understand that God often delays, not because he doesn't hear you, and not because he wants to deny your request, but because his sovereign timing is such that you're not really ready to receive that answer at that moment. Actually, by not receiving the answer for a while, He's going to grow you and mature you and purify you in the process of waiting. It's sort of like being in a dark tunnel. Boys and girls, when I was nine years old, my dad took me. It was just him and me. I was seldom alone with my dad because I had two brothers and two sisters, so it was a very special experience for me. My dad took me from Kalamazoo, Michigan, all the way to Hoboken, New Jersey, to pick up my grandfather who's coming over the ocean on, on a boat. My grandfather was afraid to fly. And so we went through the Appalachian Mountains. And I had never seen a mountain in my life. And the way we went through them, of course, was going through these long, long tunnels. Maybe you've been through them. And we were in this long tunnel. It seemed like a long time to me. And I said to my dad, is this tunnel ever going to end? And he said, oh yes, oh yes, son. And you're going to see a little pinprick at the end of the tunnel and a little pinprick of light. And as we get closer, that pinprick is going to get bigger and bigger and we're going to break out and you'll enjoy the sunshine more than ever before. And that's exactly what happened. And 15 minutes later, we were in another tunnel. 
And then another tunnel. I think there were eight of them. And later on I thought, you know, that's what the Christian life is often like. God brings us sometimes into dark tunnels. Dark tunnels. To do what? To mature our faith. You see, your faith won't get matured if you get everything you want right away, all the time. All your prayers are answered immediately. No, that's not God's leading with his people. Look at the Psalms. How many times a psalmist begins a psalm and he's waiting on God? And there's no answer yet. And he's crying out to God. God deals with us. Sometimes by his silence. Now, you need to realize that what Jesus is doing here is he's not only using his silences for this woman's spiritual maturation and for his own glory, but he's really dealing with this woman. See, this woman comes only with the needs of her daughter. Did you notice that in the first prayer? Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. She doesn't say anything about herself. Then look, look at verse 25, her second prayer. Lord, help me. I, I, I want you mothers, I want you mothers to think about this. Fathers too. Is it possible that one reason among many, among many, that God gives us children is that he wants to mature our faith. He wants to mature our faith. He wants to deal with us. Have you ever noticed in the Gospels how many times when a parent brings a child to Jesus, Jesus first deals with a parent, matures the parent. Classic examples, the father of the demoniac in, in Mark 9. You, you remember that story. The boy is on the ground, wallowing, foaming. It's awful. And the father cries out in desperation, Lord, if you, if you can do anything for this boy, please help us. And Jesus turns right around. And he, puts the, he takes the, the focus, the light off of that boy, and he turns it right to the father. And he zeroes in on the father. He says, all things are possible to him that believeth. So he deals with the father. Suddenly the father feels it and he cries out with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. He's maturing his faith. Same thing here. Jesus takes the spotlight off the daughter for a while, puts it right on the woman. He answers her not a word. And so sometimes you think the Lord is not hearing you because this child is belligerent or this child is... A, B, C, whatever the problem is, you fill in the blank. But actually, God is dealing with you to make you more dependent on Him, to mature your faith through this child. So God empties us of ourselves and fills us with Himself. And that emptying process, through His silence, is often an important part of our spiritual pilgrimage. Especially in long trials. 
oh, we think there's never going to come an end. But there will. And God won't forget us. There's a text in Proverbs that goes like this that's been very dear to me in my life, actually. There shall surely come an end, and thy expectation shall not be cut off. I had a six-year trial that seemed like it could never come to an end. And I pleaded that promise thousands of times. Sometimes I said it 20, 30 times a day. Just repeated it. Sometimes I couldn't believe what I was saying. Couldn't believe it would ever, ever come out good. Well, I learned more when I look back now. It wasn't easy at the time. But when I look back on those six years, I wouldn't trade them for anything. I needed those trials to break me, to humble me. So let that be an encouragement to you. Thomas Brooks put it this way, God's delays are not his denials. Maybe you've got unanswered prayers that are very important to you. You see no hope. Don't give up on the Lord. He is silent to you now with regard to answering that prayer. But his purpose is to mature your faith. To mature your faith. So say you have this son or this daughter that's in a very terrible condition. And you just can't believe how far things have gone. You can't even talk to the child about the Lord anymore. You can only talk to the Lord about the child. It's so bad. And you think God is never, never going to hear you. Wait on the Lord. And understand that God is using even that child, even these discouraging circumstances, to teach you things that you could never learn spiritually in the midst of prosperity. But he answered her not a word. And then we read that this woman faced not only apparent silence, but apparent rejection. Apparent rejection. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. But he answered and said, verse 24, I'm not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's like a double-barrel rejection. The disciples reject her. That's a terrible thing. They're certainly not very compassionate. They're not being good evangelists. They don't have a heart of mercy. But, well, maybe we can excuse them a little bit because we know they're sinners. And we know that sinners can be selfish. And we know that they had just escaped from Jerusalem and they were worried about being arrested there. And now this woman's voice was filling the streets and they thought, we came all the way to the northern boundary of Israel and we're going to get arrested again. Get rid of this woman, Lord. Send her away before we get in trouble again. They're being selfish. But they're sinners. But that Jesus would say, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This woman feels lost, but she's not a sheep. She's not of the house of Israel. She really doesn't qualify after she hears Jesus' statement. So Jesus finally speaks, and now he seems to reject her. One trial on top of another. And what a trial this one is. Now you say, now she's going to turn back and go home. Now she's got a definitive answer, right? I only minister to the house, the sheep of the lost the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
Oh, she can't go back home. Why can't she go back home, boys and girls? Because faith never turns its back on Jesus. But oh, this must have been hard, don't you think? It seemed like Jesus is pushing her away. It seems like he's rejecting her. Well, how can she understand this? How can we understand this? John Kelvin has a good answer. This is the way he painted it. I'll put it in my own words. He painted it this way. He said, think of, think of Jesus at, at a meal with a number of his fellow Jews. He's come in his three-year ministry between the ages of 30 and 33 to minister to the, his fellow Jews. He's, he, he's a Jewish Messiah. And Calvin said this way, it's as if she, he was saying to this woman, you're raiding the table in the middle of the meal. That's the expression Calvin uses. And what he means by that is this. You see, Pentecost had not come yet. The day is coming soon, only a couple years away, where the floodgates to the Gentiles would go open and the Spirit would be poured out. But that day had not come yet. Jesus, in his prophetical office, has confined his ministry to the Jews at this point, by and large couple exceptions. And the day will come soon when in his priestly salvific office, he is going to open the door to the Gentiles as well. So he says, now, now, you, it seems like he's saying, you, you can't have the children's bread. You, you, you're raiding the table in the, in the middle of the meal. So he seems to reject her. Now, what would you do? What would you do if you're this woman now? Well, what does this woman do? It's very fascinating. Look at verse 25. Then, then when she's, she faces this double-barrel rejection, then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. This is amazing. Then came she. It seemed like Jesus was pushing her away. And in a sense, he was. He was pushing her away with one hand. But you see, the beauty of Jesus is secretly in her soul, he's drawing her to himself with the other hand. And God often works that way in the lives of his people. The times when we need him the most and he seems to push us away, he's secretly drawing us in the innermost soul to fall at his feet and just worship him and cry out, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And you see, she doesn't only come at such a time as he seems to push her away, but she actually worships him. Worships him. So this isn't just a miracle doctor in her mind. This is the Messiah. The, the long-waited-for Messiah throughout the ages that she heard about from the Jews. She worshipped him. The word worship here is actually a double word in, in Greek. Pros and kineo. Pros means toward, and kineo means to kiss. To kiss towards, literally. And what that means is all the affections, all the emotion, all the internal 
essence of the human person goes out with affection toward the object of worship, which is Jesus Christ. It's as if she just falls at his feet. As if she says, if I must perish, I perish, but then I will perish at thy feet, worshiping thee. I love thee, Lord. I need thee, Lord. Lord, help me. See, now it's down to a three-word prayer. Some of our best prayers are our shortest, don't you think? That are, that are uttered in times of greatest urgency. Times of felt need. Lord, help me. I love that prayer. Because boys and girls, if you're three years old, you can say those words. And may God give them to you in your heart. In truth. And those three words, in a way, they have everything you need in a true prayer. It's as if she reaches up into the heavens and says, Lord, I know that thou art the Lord of glory. Thou art the Lord of lords. And she reaches down into the hell of her own needs and her own experiences and her own needy condition. Help me. And the word help is a linking verb between the Lord and me, which points us to Jesus. The Psalms say he has laid help upon one who is mighty. You know, John Bunyan has a wonderful picture of that. Remember that, boys and girls, in the slough of despond? Christian falls into the slough and he can't get out. And finally there's a man who comes along and he reaches in and he pulls him out. Remember the man's name? It's help. Help. And I have an old edition of Pilgrim's Progress where Bunyan has a few notes on the side. And he wrote this. On the side note, he wrote, help is Jesus. Lord, help me. You see, that's everything. I need thee, Lord. It's everything in beautiful simplicity. I cannot do without Jesus. You can reject me. You can push me away. But I can't go on without thee, Lord. I worship thee. Lord, help me. It's like a, it's like a necklace around a woman's neck. Each bead, each bead is another word in this little golden necklace prayer. Lord, help me. The one is, is, is bound to the other. The one depends on the other. I need his help. I cannot go on. This three-word link prayer reaches into the heavens and down into the, into the hellishness of her own heart. And the middle word is Jesus. He's the one that brings us together the mediator who brings us together with God. I'd rather die worshiping at thy feet, Lord Jesus, than live away from thee. That's what she's saying. You ever been there? You ever been there where you have to cry out, give me Jesus, else I die? She has nowhere else to go, nowhere else to turn. It's Jesus or it's nothing. It's Jesus or it's death. It's Jesus or just a, just a demon-possessed daughter. So she pleads on him whose name is help. You see, what Jesus is doing, he's maturing her faith. Now she's much deeper, much more profoundly deeper in her relationship with Jesus. Now she cannot live without him at all. Now Jesus is going to answer her, right? No, one more trial, one more but. But, but, but. 
The third but is this. But he answered and said, It's not fitting to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. So now this woman, having passed the first two tests, faced a third test from Jesus. Jesus seems to call her a dog. You know, boys and girls, it's a very bad thing to call someone a pig today, right? That's, that's a very bad thing to do. Don't ever call anyone a pig. But in those days, the Jews sometimes called Gentiles dogs. It was a term of reproach. It was like calling someone a pig. And why would Jesus ever, ever do that? You see, in Bible times, most dogs were, were wild. Old Testament, all dogs were wild. In New Testament times, most dogs were wild. The big dogs were all wild. But some people were just beginning to bring into their homes small pet dogs. And Jesus actually here uses the word for, that, for a small dog, a dog that could be a pet. And in fact, the New King James Version translates it, little dogs, to indicate that difference, you see. And what does Jesus mean by that? Well, this woman has already accepted, when she came and worshipped Jesus, she had been led deeper. She's already accepting the fact that she's unworthy of Jesus' attention. There's nothing in her that deserves him. She couldn't possibly have felt that she has any worthy cause to command him to heal her daughter or to heal herself, actually. She's a Gentile. She's a Canaanite. She's a Syrophoenician. She realizes that. But she hasn't admitted yet to Jesus. She hasn't confessed her filthiness, that she's just a big sinner in herself, as we all are. We're just big sinners. We're filthy in the eyes of God. And so Jesus, out of love, out of the desire to lead her deeper, to mature her faith, he says, the children's bread are not given to dogs. He's testing her yet again. That's an apparent insult. And how is she going to respond? Is she going to get angry now? Is she going to get like Joseph's brothers when, when they were accused of being spies? No, we are true men, they said. Is she going to say, no, Lord, I, I, I'm just a mother who's trying to help my daughter. Don't talk, don't talk to me about, about these things. Don't talk to me like that. I'm not a Gentile dog. Does she get angry with Jesus? Does she call him some kind of racist? No, no, no. Exact opposite. Exact opposite. She admits she's unclean. She admits she's a dog. She says, truth, Lord. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs that fall from their master's table. What an answer. Martin Luther, by the way, says of this answer, she ensnared Christ in his own words. Because she picked up on that little word, little dog. And she said, Lord, I'm quite happy to be a little dog underneath thy table. I can't believe, Lord, you're at the boundaries of Israel. I can't believe you're such a generous, healing Savior. I can't believe you don't have a few crumbs 
that you can slip off the edge of the table to this Gentile dog. I'm not asking, I'm not asking to sit around thy table with, with thy fellow Jews to whom thou didst come. I'm just asking, Lord, let me be your dog. Let me have a dog's portion. Just a few crumbs and it is well, Lord. Do you know what it means to, to wrestle with God that way? Samuel Rutherford, he has a whole book of 250 pages on the Canaanite woman. And he says she's using holy argumentation. Holy argumentation. She's wrestling with God. She's doing like Job. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. I would come before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Not, not arguments with a fist, but arguments with a hand spread out. I'm needy, Lord. I can't go on without thee. Give me a dog's portion. I'll gladly accept it. And then Luther goes on and he says, She ensnared Christ in his own words, who loves to be so ensnared. Jesus loves beggars who stick their foot in the door and won't go away, who knock and press and won't go away, ask and seek and knock over and over again till he opens the door. He loves such people. The Father loveth them that seek him to worship him. This woman is a seeker now. She's maturing. Yes, she understands now. She has no self-worth. She's a Syrophoenician, a Canaanite, a Gentile. She has no natural rights, no religious rights, no citizenship rights. But she can't do without the Lord. She says, Lord, I cannot let thee go except thou bless me. Like Jacob. She's, she's a New Testament Jacob. She can't do without Jesus. She takes God at his own word. And she says, let me be a little dog. She turns the promises of God, the very words of God, into petitions. This is the way to wrestle with God. Lord, thou hast called me a dog. Well, let me be a dog, a little dog under thy table. Even one crumb, even a few crumbs will satisfy me. You see, this is the way to plead with God. When you, when you plead with God rightly, you take God's own handwriting in His Word, and you show Him His own handwriting, His own promises, and you say, Lord, do as Thou hast said. God is tender, said the Puritan William Grinnell. God is tender of His own handwriting. He will respond. He will respond. Some years ago, I had an old elder who was cleaning out his attic. He was moving, and he found a letter written to him by my father, just after my father was converted when he was 28 years old. And it detailed all my father's experiences in my father's own handwriting. And he brought it to me, and I opened it up. I started reading it, and he, he could see my interest. He said, would you like to keep it? I said, would I like to keep it? <laughs> yes, I would love to keep it. This is my father's handwriting. But how much more, how much more God loves to see his own handwriting coming back to him. His own psalms, for example, turned into petitions. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Lord, be thou my shepherd so that I do not want. Shepherd me, Lord, in every way that thou dost shepherd thy people. Oh, come back to God with his own handwriting. Come back to God with his own promises. That's what this woman is doing. She's taking God's word from the lips of Jesus, and she's bringing it back to him.
I am blind, Lord, but hast thou not eyes set for, for the blind? I am poor, Lord, but didst thou not who was rich become poor, that poor sinners may be made rich in thee? I am like a dog, Lord. I am like a beast before thee, but hast thou not mercy for the greatest of sinners? I am weak, but art thou not the strong one, the mighty to save? I am unrighteous, but art thou not our Lord, our righteousness, even our righteousness only. I'm a dog, but dost thou not have crumbs for dogs? And she puts her foot in the door. She won't let the Lord go. When I was a boy, I still remember my dad saying to me many times, one of the basic marks of grace of a child of God is that he won't let the Lord alone. He said, don't you ever let the Lord alone. Keep that beggar staff there. Keep praying. Let me just illustrate this with another story. I was thinking about my dad right now, and he, he, he used to tell this, this story with, with tears in his eyes. But uh, when he was nine years old, my grandparents lived in a very poor house, and there was a train track going through the backyard. And often the trains would stop momentarily. And a beggar would get off and go to the nearby houses and ask for food. And one day that happened again. And a beggar came to the door. And my dad answered the door. And the beggar says, uh, I need a sandwich. And uh, my dad went to my grandma and said, there's a beggar in the door and he needs a sandwich. Well, my grandma said, you go back to the door and tell him, we're just as poor as he is. So that's what my dad did. And then my dad went to shut the door. And boys and girls, the beggar actually put his foot in the door. And it, it, my dad couldn't close it. And he looked up at the beggar, and the beggar was looking very earnestly at him. He said, just one slice of bread. Well, my dad didn't know what to do, so he went back to my grandma, and he said, the beggar won't go away. He wants just one slice of bread. My grandma said, oh, make him a whole sandwich. He's a real beggar. You know, John Bunyan once made a list of his ten top sins that he could confess to God. I forget if it's number three or four, but it was pretty high on the list. I just knock once, and then I leave the Lord alone too often. When we don't persevere in prayer, we don't grow. It's like having a salesman come to your door and he rings the doorbell and you go to the door and well, he's halfway across the lawn already to the next house and you, you turn around and you say to your wife, oh well, must be, a, must be a salesman. He didn't knock very long. Remember in Pilgrim's Progress how mercy, Christiana and the children got in but mercy wasn't able to get in and she kept knocking Bunyan says, she kept knocking until she would have fainted, Bunyan says. And finally, God's timing, God's way, the door goes open and mercy comes in. You see, when we have to persevere in prayer and we don't get answers, you put your foot in the door and you keep begging. And you wait on the Lord for his time, his way, his sovereign grace. It will come at his time.
he will hear the cry of the needy. He'll hear your cry too, my friend. His answer may not be what you expect. But just communing with him throughout the whole trial is already a blessing. Puritan William Bridge said, "'Tis a mercy to pray, though I never receive the mercy prayed for." Just to have the ear of the Lord of Sabaoth. Bishop Joseph Hall said something even better. He said, good prayers never come weeping home. I either receive what I ask for, or I receive what I should have been asking for in the first place. Even better, you see, God does exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. God delights in spiritual beggars, and he will hear their cries. And now, oh now, Jesus, he sees that this woman passes this third test in such a beautiful way. Oh woman, he says, mature is thy faith. Thy faith. Wait a minute. I thought it was the faith that he gave her. Why does he call it her faith? You see, Arminian sees on this text. If you read an Arminian commentary on it, they say, you see, it's man's exercise. You have to exercise faith in your own strength. No, 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 no. When Jesus gives us something, he gives it away to us. When he gives us faith, it becomes our faith. It doesn't happen outside of us. It happens in here. But it's his faith in terms of what he worked in us. But he's so generous, he gives it away to us and he calls it ours. It's sort of like when our kids were yet home, my wife would come to me usually about a week before my birthday and she'd say, "Uh, the children would like to get you a birthday present. So I knew what that meant. I reached into my wallet and I said, how much do you want? And she'd say, oh, $30. Give them $30. My birthday comes along and they present me with this wonderful present. And what do I say? You know, that was my money anyway. That'd be awful. I say, thank you for your gift. And I was delighted. I was pleased. The Lord is pleased to work faith in us and then pleased with the faith that we bring to him. That's how generous he is. Oh, woman. Mature is thy faith. And he, he's the one who just matured it. He gave her the grace to pass these three tests. It's all of grace. All our sanctification doesn't happen outside of us. It all happens inside of us. But when we know ourselves, we end up giving all the credit for all of it, whatever we have, to the Lord. What hast thou that thou hast not received? And if thou received it, wherefore dost thou boast? O woman, mature is thy faith. I give it away to you. God is no miser. He gives us everything. He gave gave us the best He had. His only begotten Son for the worst He could find. Sinners like you and me. He gives it all. It's a a salvation of complete, total, radical, sovereign grace. And then He adds, be it unto thee even as thou wilt. It's like he takes the keys out of his pocket. And he says, woman, you can, you can go into my storehouse. Here, you go into my storehouse. And, and I trust you now because I know you need me. 
you, you just take anything you want. And it's like she goes into a storehouse and takes, takes two big loaves of bread, one for herself, one for her daughter. And she goes home, and her daughter is made whole from that very hour. That very hour. The very moment. The very moment. When she couldn't go on without Jesus, you see, he's already working in that daughter. You can go now. You can have whatever you want. Oh, the generosity of this Savior. But I want to close, I want to close with, with one question. How is it possible, actually, that Jesus could be so generous to a Gentile woman? who was unworthy. She was a sinner. Go back with me to the beginning of the sermon. Do you remember my three points? Apparent silence. Apparent rejection. Apparent insult. Who endured the real silence? Jesus. My God. My God. Why hast thou forsaken me? Deafening silence. Jesus was not pushed away with one hand and drawn with the other. He is pushed away with both hands by his Father. He who knew no sin became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He endured the real silence. And he endured the true rejection. He seemed to be rejected by heaven, by earth, by hell. And he hung between them all, naked, even rejected by nature. The sun wouldn't shine upon him. Rejected everywhere, except by one despicable thief who was despised by everyone. He was thrust away by the demons of hell as he hung upon the cross between earth and heaven. Totally rejected by all the religious people of the day there. His disciples cowered and terrified, far away. Pure-minded women who followed him. Oh, he was rejected. Rejected, rejected. He endured the real rejection. And he endured the real insults. He's called Beelzebub, prince of the devil. He was spat upon. He was mocked. He was taunted. He was... He was crowned with a fake crown of thorns. He was robed with a purple robe. He could have come down from the cross. He could have vindicated himself. He could have destroyed all the mockers around the cross. He could have shown his power. But he stayed on the cross to endure the real silence and the real rejection and the real insult so he could give to Gentile dogs his full and free salvation. To sinners like you and me. This is the glory of the gospel. This is the beauty of the cross. And so the whole point is that Jesus Christ is never really silent to his people. It's only apparent silence. He never really rejects him. It's only apparent rejection. He never really insults them. It's only apparent insult. He uses the apparent silence, the apparent rejection, and the apparent insult to mature our faith so that we will grow in communion with Him and cast our all upon Him who was really facing silence and rejection and insult 
so that we could be set free to cry out all our lives, Lord, increase our faith and make us holy and come quickly that we may one day soon be sin-free with thee in glory, married, spiritually married to the perfect bridegroom, our Lord and Savior, who will say, friend, come up higher and enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And then all the trials will be over. All the maturation process will be done. And forever and ever and ever, we will be growing and growing and growing in cumulative knowledge of this glorious and beautiful Savior, whom to know is life eternal. My dear friend, do you know this Savior who will do everything for a sinner who can do nothing? Is Jesus Christ your all and your in all? Oh, don't rest. Never rest outside of him. He offers himself freely to you tonight, as apparently he did this morning as well. He comes again tonight. And he says, put your, put your beggar's foot in the door. And come with my word. Come with my promises. I love to be constrained by sinners who can't live without me. The Father seeketh such to worship him. May God make you, keep you, such a worshiper for his own glory's sake. And may you soon, may we soon be with him sin-free in Emmanuel's land with no more tests to pass but our eyes fixed on him who is altogether lovely. And we'll take the crown off of our own head, won't we? And we'll cast it at his feet and we'll say, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to thee be all the glory and dominion and honor and praise forever and ever. Amen. Let's have a short prayer. Gracious God, we thank thee so much for this, this moment together in thy house tonight to hear how thou dost mature our faith, weaning us from ourselves and ripening us to need thee and then to find thee and to know Thy sweet salvation. O oh Lord, Thou didst mature this woman's face so, so quickly through these trials, one after another. And this actually give her assurance of faith. O oh woman, great is Thy faith. Please grant us that assurance of resting fully in the Lamb of God his bloody righteousness, his intercession, his prophetical priestly and kingly office to meet our every need. Bless us in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.